And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food practice sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for these words recorded, not only for the ancient church in Asia Minor, Asia Minor, Lord, but also for us. We would pray that you'd open our hearts to, open our ears to hear this word, open our hearts to receive it, and Lord, enable us by your spirit living in us and enabling us to live it out. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Um, have you, I'm sure many of you seen, have you seen the work that's going on on the tracks up here? You've seen the work train that's out here? Uh, that fascinates me. I had the privilege of going between London and Paris on the Channel train, <clears throat> and they had an automated track leveling calibration system where I think once every week they would go through and they would recalibrate all of the rails so that the train between London and Paris could go 200 miles an hour and they didn't have to worry about any kind of problems. So as you're looking at the workout here with this equipment going on, you've, you, you, they've got all these they'll, they're recalibrating the tracks. Now, it's not like the train didn't work well before, okay? but they feel compelled to maintain this quality in the tracks so that the trains can run swiftly through here to the tune of 35 trains a day or whatever it is, right? So they, they're pulling out old railroad ties and putting new railroad ties in, all of this with these giant machines they've got up here. They're putting new uh, cleats, new, new uh, spikes into the tracks, and then they're... They're leveling. They're putting new ballast underneath the, underneath the ties, the railroad ties. And they're leveling the tracks, and they're making sure that they're the right distance apart so that the train can run smoothly. <clears throat> like I said, it's, it's not as though the train hasn't been running well, but they're recalibrating it so that it can run even better still. And they're giving it this close kind of attention. 
With these letters in the book of Revelation, that's kind of what Jesus is doing. This is a sort of a recalibration for the church. Um, The Lord Jesus asked the question in the Gospels as he's instructing his disciples. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will there be faith in the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will there be faith in the earth? How would we answer that? Would it be an automatic, oh yeah, sure, there's going to be faith in the earth? Or would it be a little more realistic? It's like, are we still faithful? And that's the whole point. The whole point is that our hearts need recalibration, the church needs recalibration, and so Jesus sends these letters to the churches because he wants to find true faith. He wants there to be true faith and true love in the character of the church, trusting that he will, in fact, shepherd his flock. So these letters are recalibration of the church. To continue an analogy, he's resetting our tracks. He's making sure that they're the right distance and properly level. Now look, every church has its gaps. There's not a perfect church at all. Every church has its gaps. But some gaps are more dangerous than others. If there was a three-foot gap in the tracks out here, we can be assured there would be disaster. There are little gaps, maybe three-sixteenths of an inch. Those don't mean a whole lot to a train. But if it was a three-foot gap or a six-foot gap, that would mean an awful lot. So every church has gaps, but the real question is, how are our gaps? How are we doing? Are we in danger of derailment? We always have to ask that question. And Jesus wants us to ask that question. <clears throat> and this is, this is the letter to the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum is, is receiving a wake-up call. They have enough of a gap that it's a danger. And Jesus is calling them to give attention to it. It's a wake-up call and a course correction. Now let's keep in mind, not only is this letter sent to Pergamum, but the way that Jesus has stated this is that this is a letter for all the churches. Hear what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just those seven churches, but every Christian church that professes that Jesus is Lord. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's going on here? You know, there's, there's a kind of a numbness that settles into life when you get comfortable someplace. When the church becomes accustomed to her surroundings, there's a numbness that settles in, a numbness that can lead to an actual kind of apathy, Well, you know, we don't care so much about the sin of the people that are around us. We don't care so much about the prevailing atmosphere of sin. We do kind of care about our own walk with Jesus, but maybe that's the extent of it. And so we're like the proverbial frog in the pot, right? 
that as the pot is being heated up, the church, you know, like that frog, doesn't even realize it's in danger until the water starts to boil and then it doesn't know what to do, can't get out. It happened to ancient Israel before David and uh, even, before, even during the time of Moses. You know, the people got accustomed to something and then the, the, their apathy actually bubbled up in grumbling. They started to grumble. You know, they grumbled about Moses. They grumbled about manna. They grumbled about all kinds of things because they were just hungry for the onions and the garlic of Egypt. It happened in ancient Israel before David the king. It happened after David the king. It happened before the exile. As the people got accustomed to all of these nations sort of living around them and doing their own thing, and they weren't taking on these nations. They weren't saying, look, we need to stop what these nations are doing. There were a few kings that made that effort, but not everybody. There are some people who just entered into it because it was just, Something that became accepted. And they needed to be jarred into wakefulness. They became accustomed to idolatry. They became accustomed to sexual immorality. They became accustomed to all of the things that the nations were gradually introducing into the church, and rather into Israel, and Israel needed to be jarred into reality. And the same thing goes for the New Testament church. We don't live in a Christian nation anymore. We would like to. We would like to think we're a Christian nation, and there's a lot of Christian influence in this nation, but you know what? Look around you. This is a post-Christian nation. We're surrounded by idolatry. We're surrounded by immorality. We're surrounded by greed and bribery. Let us not be foolish. Let us not become apathetic and let us not become numb to it. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, what's happening to Persia, Persia or Pergamum, what's happening to Pergamum is they got accustomed to their surroundings, began to accept them, and they were becoming numb to them. Has that happened to us? Is it happening to us? And so Jesus jars Pergamum with a rebuke. He says this, I have a few things against you. This this is a lawyer or a plaintiff standing before a judge making his comment and saying, I have this accusation against you. I've got this complaint. This ought to be really waking Pergamum up. He says this then, some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, and some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, why is this so jarring? Why does this come at them so suddenly and pointedly? Well, look what Jesus says in his commendation. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, 
who was killed among you. The church in Pergamum had held on to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as they were faced with having to burn their incense to Caesar and declare Caesar is Lord, and Antipas refused to do that. Believe it or not, in all of Christian literature, this is the first named martyr that we have. Antipas. So, even though everybody was expected to burn his incense, Antipas didn't. And persecution broke out on the church, and Antipas was killed, and the church still did not deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they had faith in Christ. They had faith in Christ. And Christ commends them for that. He commends them for that. Having faith in Christ is commendable, and it's something that we need to be encouraged by and something that we need to hold on to firmly. But that's not the whole story. That's not the whole story, and that's what Pergamum is facing here. Pergamum's situation is kind of interesting. Look how Jesus describes it. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and I know that Antipas was killed there, where Satan dwells. Interesting. Pergamum was was actually a capital of the Roman region, and it had been a capital in that area for 400 years. It had a well-established reputation for being a good political center, but also a center for uh, Caesar worship. The city itself was built on this cone-shaped hill, and in fact, one ancient visitor to the Middle East said it was truly a royal city. So you can imagine coming down this river valley, seeing this beautiful cone-shaped hill, and then on top of it, uh, 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 almost what it looks like a citadel, a fortress, a castle up there. That was the city of Pergamum. I don't know how many of you have ever had the chance to see some of the pictures that might have been taken of uh, monasteries or castles in Italy where you have these high hills or these stone buttresses and on top is uh, the, these ancient fortress-like structures that were used by the monks or used uh, by the, uh, the, Roman, uh, the Roman guards. It was that kind of a place. <clears throat> it had that kind of majesty. It had that kind of reputation. But more than that, in the city of Pergamum, there were temples. There were temples to Zeus, who was the father of all the gods. In fact, his name was called Zeus Soter. Zeus the Savior. And one of the other gods that was there was Asclepius Soter. Now, we recognize Asclepius by the emergency medical teams as they've got that staff with the snake going up it. <clears throat> that symbol comes out of ancient Rome as a symbol of healing, which is exactly the symbol that was used for the god Asclepius in Pergamum, Asclepius Soter, Asclepius the Savior. So here, <clears throat> excuse me, here already was a, uh, 
was a city that had a reputation for, uh, for having these two great gods. Plus, there was Caesar worship. Well, Pergamum got established, the city of per- rather the church in Pergamum got established and became accustomed to those surroundings, accustomed to the nature of these, these gods being called savior, so that in some way there was some competition to the Lord Jesus Christ. After their persecution, um, they they simply settled in where the persecution was released or relieved. But the problem is, Jesus says this about the church. I know where you dwell. What do we do with that statement? I know where you dwell. Think about this. The earth is not our home. Here we have no continuing city, it says in the book of Hebrews. We look for a city whose builder and maker is God. We look for a city that's established on the cornerstone, our Lord Jesus Christ, where we are built up as a holy temple within it. Jesus himself said in in Luke 9, somebody came to them, he and his disciples, they were walking along the road. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. Beloved, we can settle into a place and begin to breathe the atmosphere of that place, and suddenly we're no different than the people we are living among. But the fact is, Christians are following the Lord Jesus Christ. We are following a Savior who gave himself to the fullest for our souls. We are following a Savior who loved us to the point of shedding his blood for us. For us to settle into a place because it's comfortable and we're no longer persecuted is dangerous. That is a serious gap in our tracks. We who follow Christ really have no place to lay our heads. We are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're looking for a home in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And so while we might have a tent here, we don't dwell here. Our hearts are in heaven. Where your your heart is, there will your treasure also be, or vice versa. Where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. So we, when we, the church, look at this place as our home, as a place to settle, we get into trouble. <clears throat> well, how did Pergamum get into trouble? <clears throat> Sorry. Well, this is the accusation. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam was a pagan prophet. He was a pagan prophet who was commissioned by a king in order to curse Israel. And he couldn't do it because God wouldn't let him. Three times, Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel. And finally, Balak just gave up. But we are told later that Balaam gave instruction to Balak to lure the people into sexual immorality and idolatry, and that that would be enough to condemn them. Think about our culture. Do you know how many churches have just given up the whole sexual morality thing? They've just given it up. It's like, you know what? I'm surrounded by people who do this. I'm surrounded by people who engage in this. It doesn't really matter. God's not going to do anything about this. That's not what this letter says. This letter says, I will make war against you. It's the only time Jesus has ever said that. So Balaam lured the people into idolatry and sexual immorality. They became numb to it, and now they needed to be jarred out of it. Beloved, let us not fall into the trap of our culture. Let us not fall into the trap of what's just generally accepted by the world around us because it's destructive to our souls. It will consume us. C.S. Lewis says, oh, it's not the dramatic path that pulls somebody into hell. It's the long, slow, gentle path. The downward traveling until you realize you're too far and you can't get back. That's what's happened in American culture. That's what's happened to the American church. Now, I don't know if you know it, but there's a lot of millennials, and then, what do they call them now, Gen X? Gen Xers? Who have basically declared, yes, I believe in Jesus, yes, I believe God's word, and no, it doesn't mean that I have to be sexually pure. How do... How does that come about? That's a serious gap in the tracks. That's a serious gap in the tracks. Young people, please pay attention to this. These pressures will not go away. You must resolve now in your heart to preserve yourself to the Lord. You must. Because the pressures for Christians only get tougher. They only get tougher. But you have a Savior who is strong in you. You have a Savior who can preserve you and keep you. You're not going to resist those things by yourself on your own. You must throw yourself upon Jesus and let him fill you with his strength and his spirit that you may resist these things. It just doesn't go for you young people. We who are older face the same kinds of pressures, sometimes more subtly sometimes more deceitfully. But they're there, and we also have to throw ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ every day, twice a day, six times a day. It doesn't matter. Our strength is not in ourselves. 
It's in Jesus. His cross, his power is sufficient and effectual. That's why we confess our sins every week. We recognize our weakness and we say, Lord, I need your strength in me to save me. And all God's people said, Amen. Absolutely. I actually kind of like that. That's not very Presbyterian, is it? I'm going to start using that a lot. So the other thing that they're faced with is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, Jesus said, we don't know really what they taught, but we know this. Jesus hated them. He hated their teaching. And he said, I'll make war against them. I'll make war. God said, you shall be holy for I am holy. Holiness for us, for you and me, is found only in the righteousness of Christ. And when we compromise that, we make the gospel a nothing. So the rebuke is basically this. Sure, you kept the faith when you were faced with persecution. You kept testimony of my name, but you settled in and became comfortable with the practices of the pagans around you. You became lured by your own lusts and passions. You became lured by things that made God small and made holiness unimportant. Has he said that to our church? Has Jesus said that to this church? You've held on to the faith, the truth, at least in principle, even through the pressure and upheaval of denominational change. And there was. There was pressure and there was upheaval. Some people didn't like that. So, have we settled in? We need to be careful that we are not poisoned. 2 Corinthians 6 16 through 18 says this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. Almighty. So we can respond to that command of God because God's grace comes with the command. God's grace comes with the call. So here's the warning, Jesus says. Repent. You know what repentance is, right? Repentance is turning 180 degrees from the direction that you were going. You're walking one direction you realize this is the wrong direction, and you turn 180 degrees and walk the opposite direction. That's repentance. Jesus says, repent. Don't live life that way. Don't even condone that kind of life. Don't even ignore it, but call it to account. Repent from sexual immorality, from the teachings of Balaam, from the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, anything that dishonors God. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. When Jesus wars against a church, 
<clears throat> he brings his truth, and the truth starts to divide. The truth starts to cut. The truth starts to remove. You know, I know that there were people who left this church because there were the doctrines of the Reformation, the doctrines of grace that were being preached. They didn't like it. They stiffened their neck. They left. They left because they weren't getting their way. That's warfare. That's what that is. That's warfare. And we need to submit to that because Jesus knows and loves his church. He knows and loves his church, and he will wage war in order to keep it pure. When he says war against them with the word of my mouth, it's the word of truth that cuts like a double-edged sword, that divides between soul and spirit and between the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when the word is being preached, it's cutting into your heart, and it's making sure that it's dividing between those thoughts and those intentions. But it's also got grace associated with it that calls you to a faithful walk with the Lord Jesus. He gives a promise then, Not only does does he give the warning, he gives the promise. The promise is at first elusive, but I'll try and be brief about this. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Manna was what God's people were fed with in the wilderness. It was the food that came down from heaven. It was the food that was given to them that they may be strengthened in their sojourning in the wilderness. That's exactly what we need. We're basically in the wilderness. We're sojourners. We're wandering. We are, we are waiting for that time when we can be brought into the holy land that the Lord has set before us. And so he feeds us. If we really repent, the Lord will take his word and make it nourishing to our souls, nourishing to our spirits. He will take the word in small amounts or in light amount, large amounts, and he will strengthen us and feed us. That's the hidden manna. And that hidden manna will lead us to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The marriage feast that's held in store for us at the end of time. And I will give him a white stone. White stones, nobody really quite knows what this means. There are like six different possibilities, but the number one possibility that seems the strongest is that in the ancient world, if you were brought on trial and you were standing before a judge, those who were part of a jury that is a collection of people to listen to whatever the evidence was, in ancient Israel it was a collection of the elders, in the Roman world, it was a collection of, uh, uh, of various kinds of law uh, lawyers, various kinds of senators. They would listen to the evidence, and if they believed you were guilty, they would show up and they would present a black stone. But if you were not guilty, they would walk up and they would present a white stone. What Jesus is saying is, I know I'm standing before the judge of all eternity. I know I'm standing as a lawyer and I'm bringing an accusation against you. But if you repent, I will present a white stone. Not guilty. Not guilty. 
Here's the encouraging piece of grace. This is a church that messed up. This is a church that was involved in the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of Nicolaitans. And Jesus said, repent and you get a white stone. Repent and I declare you not guilty. We too, whatever the sin is we've committed, whatever gap is in our tracks, if we repent, Jesus' grace is overflowing. His mercy is unending. He presents before the judge of all mankind a white stone. And not just a white stone, a white stone with a new name. Abram's name was changed to Abraham. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Peter, Cephas's name was changed to Peter. Paul, or Saul's name was changed to Paul. A new name means that you've got a new relationship with the Lord, that you've got a new character and a new quality that can be identified that says you are a friend of God, that you are one who walks with God and enjoy his company and his personal blessing. And so if you repent, you get the white stone, not guilty, and a new name, friend of God. Whatever whatever that secret name is between you and the Lord. What a promise, what an encouragement to turn away from those things which corrode and corrupt and pull us into a lack of holiness to be able to be declared not guilty for the sake of the blood and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a challenging letter. It's a jarring letter. It's an encouraging letter. Because every one of you today can walk out with a white stone and a new name. Repent. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Rely upon his grace. Walk with him. Let him fill the gaps in your tracks so that you can run well. Let's pray together, shall we?